and welcome to the Oyster Stew podcast. I'm Libby Hall, Director of Communications for Oyster Consulting. As the investing population has grown, so has their wealth. This is great for their finances, but it also creates more opportunities for fraud and abuse. In today's podcast, Bob Mooney, General Counsel of Oyster Consulting, is joined by Ron Long, Principal of Long Life Consulting, and an expert on the issues facing elder and vulnerable investors. Join us as Ron and Bob walk through the issues around protecting elder and vulnerable investors against fraud and abuse, and what financial services firms are doing to combat it. Let's get started. Bob? Thanks, Libby. My name is Bob Mooney. I'm the General Counsel for Oyster Consulting and the host of today's podcast. With me is Ron Long, Principal of Long Life Consulting and an expert on the issues facing elder and vulnerable investors. I've had the pleasure of working with Ron for over 20 years in the area of detecting and preventing financial abuse of elder and vulnerable investors, and look forward to discussing with Ron the scope of the problem and what financial services firms are doing to combat it. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Bob. And I feel a little bit like the Blues Brothers getting the band back together. I literally got started focusing on the elder under your tutelage. So this has been a good run over the last 20 years. It's good to be uh, working with you again, Ron. Ron, there's a fair amount of public commentary today on the need to protect the elder and vulnerable population from financial abuse. Can you dimension the scope of the problem? Yeah, and it really starts, Bob, with the, the major demographic change. When we think about the, those over 65, originally when we came up with Social Security, they chose the age 65 because most people died at 63, 64. They didn't think they'd have to pay out much. But we've gotten healthier over the years. We've grown a lot. So the older adults are a bigger part of our population, actually projected to be having more older adults than kids under 18 by 2035. So we have that dimension. And then as the older population has grown, they also have grown in their wealth. You folks over 55 have close to 72% of the wealth of this country. That is very good for us as we age, but guess what? It's also very good for the bad guys who now have a target-rich environment on which to poach. And then the final thing is, even though we're living longer and we're living healthier, there is the tendency and just a medical fact that the longer you live, the likelihood of Alzheimer's or diminished capacity comes in. So even in the absence of actual fraud, we may have our older folks uh, making themselves vulnerable to abuse just by the nature of aging. Ron, we have a situation where there are more older folks. That's where the money is concentrated. Uh, increasing cognitive, cognitive decline as people age. Um, is there any estimates on the, the, the amount of financial abuse that this population experiences on an annual basis? Yeah, and this has been a frustration, and you and I have talked about it. We do not have good numbers. There are estimates that range from 2.9 billion per year to $36 billion per year. I, I think those two extremes may be too high, but it is a significant amount of money moving from the hands of our older folks into the hands of bad guys. Ron, when, when, when we were working uh, more closely together directly on this problem, I recall that uh, there were several primary uh, perpetrators of, the, of financial abuse. Uh, 
on elder and vulnerable. And those were, among others, family members, uh, caregivers, and confidence, uh, people who would, who would earn the confidence. Could you describe uh, some of the types of scams that you've encountered, some of the characteristics? Yeah, so I call it the three Fs in the C, friends, family, fiduciaries, and caregivers. Not my uh, GPA in the first year of college, but these folks all get past the defenses that many of us would put up. So they're inside already, and they're using that advantage to get at some of our older people. It's it's as simple as the 45-year-old ne'er-do-well son that won't get off mom's couch. The advisor had agreed to $2,000 a month withdrawals, and all of a sudden we're now seeing $10,000, $12,000, $13,000 withdrawals. You also have that caretaker that comes in, the older person's in a little less uh, physical shape than they ordinarily would be, and they take advantage. Sometimes a fiduciary, and I hate to say it, we have uh, some of our religious leaders take advantage. So there are people who are inside the guard of our older folks that take advantage. But I do not want to ignore the bad guys, the scammers, and those folks range from the scams of the romance scam, which the FBI has said is one of the top confidence scams affecting the elderly, to the grandparent scam or the tech support scam. And in a lot of ways, crypto is now being used. There's no actual crypto in motion, but they're using that as a lure to scam older folks as well. Ron, before we leave the, the, the scope of the problem, I know we've been talking about financial abuse, but I believe it's, it's not it, that it is common that financial abuse is, is often associated with uh, physical abuse as well. Is, is that your, been your experience? And that is the experience. Uh, we literally had a real life example of the caretaker bringing the older woman into the office to discuss making some additional withdrawals, adding the caretaker to the account. And it the assistant actually saw the woman stepping on the older person's foot to make her answer affirmatively. That's a situation where you reach out and get law enforcement involved, but that requires all of us to pay attention to things like bruising, uh, fearfulness, and what have you. Ron, I know this has been a topic that we've worked on for over 20 years, uh, and the regulators and the legislatures over the last uh, 15 to 20 years as well, have taken an increased interest in protecting this population. And I know you were instrumental uh, in uh, several states in getting the legislature to pass uh, bills that would help protect elder and vulnerable um, investors. But can you talk a little bit about, uh, and I know you recently attended the FINRA conference uh, as well. Can you give us a little perspective on the current regulatory and legislative landscape? Yeah. Bob, the real truth of this is we do not have a very neat national initiative combating elder financial abuse with laws, regulations, and things all of us can follow. So FINRA actually, though, is the one place where we do have a national footprint. Every broker in all 50 states, District of Columbia, uh, in D.C., Puerto Rico, they do have to follow FINRA's rules. And FINRA has come up with two very important features. One was the trusted contact. Have every broker ask their customer, would you like to name someone we can reach out to in case of an emergency, whether it's financial, 
or arguably you slip and fall in the lobby. But we'd like to have that name for contact. This person doesn't have control over the account, but it is a way for the firm to get involved. And then the second thing FINRA did, which we think is very important, which says that the firm has the option, the opportunity to pause or hold up a transaction where the firm suspects elder abuse. We think those two things done on a national basis will make a tremendous dent in some of the abuse. The challenge, of course, is everyone's not regulated by FINRA. The entire banking industry doesn't have a national rule similar to these two rules that FINRA has put in place. So um, those are great advances by FINRA to, to help here. I am a little concerned from a firm perspective on the option uh, to take action when they see some type of potential abuse, and whether that option from a regulatory perspective is an expectation or truly is it a, a discretion that firms have whether or not to put a freeze on on assets in the account. Well, I think you're on to an issue that we all still have to work through. Whether it, when that examiner comes in and you had a situation and you didn't put the freeze on the account, will the examiner think, quote unquote, you violated the rule? We don't think that should be the case, but examiners, as you know, are individuals throughout the country. The other is we have to worry about our uh, litigation from the plaintiff's bar. They will use this rule to put it into their potential lawsuits against the firm that while Fender said optional, you had enough facts where you should have actually acted. And I think it's a fair point to note as well, while we're talking about uh, regulatory exposure and financial exposure, from my perspective, I think one of the biggest risks for firms in this area is reputational exposure. I think in there, you hit the nail on the head. There's no dollar amount back in the 70s, there was, where do I go to get my reputation back? If a firm gets sued for one of these cases, it really does make it uh, a hard swim back upstream to get back to their prior uh, status before the incident. And, and the headlines typically start with elder investor um, when, these, uh, when these matters hit the press. So, Ron, you talked a little bit about what FINRA is doing uh, in this area. You can talk a little bit about what, what the states are doing. Yeah, so th there is good news in the state work because it is state by state, but we're now up to close to 40 states that have taken this issue on. They're not all uniform, but they have some nice features. Many of the states now allow a firm to pause a transaction rather than just a disbursement. Many people thought, oh, only transactions. Act, step in when money is leaving the firm. Many times you have a bad guy. You have a grandson who wants grandmom to move all of her money from safe investments to his new startup. So yes, it's an investment. The money did not, quote unquote, leave the firm, but all of a sudden her holdings aren't as safe. The states have also created a feature which I think is a very good one, which is many people don't have the foresight to name the trusted contact. In a number of states, they have what is allowed to reach out to a person reasonably associated with the account. The client didn't name someone, but you know Bob is a good son. He knows his mom well. You're able, minimal information, similar to trusted contact, you're not giving Bob full reign over the account, but you're able to reach out to him 
as a person reasonably associated with his mom or dad's account, such that he can then step in and look into the situation, talk about the romance, love of her life, or whatever it might be. So I think those are where you have the states trying different things than maybe what a FINRA could do from a national perspective. And I know you work extensively with uh, the retail branch system. Uh, what are some of the what is some of the reluctance to reach out to try to get an ICE or trusted contact uh, authority? Yes, and it is individual by uh, advisors. Some are very good at it, but some think that this is not a topic I want to bring up. Ron, I need to talk to you about you might get Alzheimer's, so I need somebody I can call. Or Mary, you might fall for a romance scam, so I, I don't trust you to make your own decisions. Give me a name for a trusted contact. We think it, you have to take the approach similar to what we do now at the dentist's office or the doctor's office, that it's routine, it's expected, and it is just another feature that we think is helpful in the account. Not that you may suffer from dementia or diminished capacity, but these are all good practices that any good business, whether the doctor's office or the dentist's office, would put in place. And you touched on an, uh, a combination of both regulatory expectation and best practices. Maybe let's move into more um, kind of direct discussion around uh, in, in today's environment with the, with the tools that are available uh, regulatory and legislatively. Uh, what, what should firms do and, and what are you seeing firms do to try to address this problem? Yeah, I, I think there, it's a, unfortunately a two-tier system. Your larger firms are able to put dedicated teams focused on this area, folks that help improve the outreach on trusted contact. They're able to do that. When you're a smaller firm, though, you can't do the full team, but we do think it's important to get someone in the firm more knowledgeable, trained up a little more, and have all the folks in the firm know that uh, Betty or Ron is the go-to person when we have an elderly situation. The other is to just focus on some of that information about your clientele. Know that they're aging, know more about them. And back to what we say in a lot of things, documentation. You should document the conversations. Document your interactions with the client or customer. When you first hear something about the new love interest from Portugal, but he's based on uh, an Arab oil rig and can't get to his money, that should be a clue. That should be written. That should be a clue. And now the firm is more alert at that point. So those are all ways to get started in this area. The other would be to make sure when you're doing your outreach for trusted contact, reach out, have the conversation. If the client declines, document that there was a decline by the client to name a trusted contact. You know, Ryan, and, and, and when we work together on this topic, it always struck me as interesting in talking to a financial advisor when, when we had a situation occur, when there was financial abuse, that uh, upon reflection, the advisor noticed over a period of time, a change in behavior, a change in investment philosophy, uh, referencing to other influencers in the decision-making process. From your perspective, anything firms can do to try to aggregate or create some type of institutional memory of, of these types of changes, evolving changes with clients? 
Yeah, there. Uh, I think there's some good fintech out there that is helping a firm or will help a firm maintain notes of what's going on and be able to reference back. If I see two or three customers all mention the latest crypto investment that is being sold through Ron, that should be something that the aggregating tool to allow the firm to say, let's uh, take a closer look. We've got two or three customers. We also know and can learn that there are pattern changes in what our customers are withdrawing. We'd agreed on the $4,000 a month withdrawal. You're now seeing for the last three or four months far in excess of that. On occasion, that can be very plausible. Taking a fancy trip, helping a grandchild with a college tuition. But that information should at least be documented and maybe a query or two uh, submitted just to make sure you're knowing what the client's situation is. Ron, have you come across cases where the trusted contact or in case of emergency person was the person sus suspected of being the scammer? That unfortunately does happen, Bob. And it is uh, fortunately both in Fenner's rules and many of the state's rules. If you suspect them, you don't have to use them and you should not go to them. In fact, the I can't give a number on it, but I still think we're better off having listed trusted contacts as a potential people to reach out to. And if we have to avoid them because they are the perpetrator, it just puts us in a situation where you're with the other customers who don't have trusted contacts listed. You still go through the same process steps of what you do when you see a potential elder financial abuse situation. And I, I, I do want to mention and get your uh, kind of real world experience in this. Finner uh, rules do have certain timelines that uh, firms need to follow. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about just some of the, the process involved in, uh, in complying with the Finner rules in order to interrupt or freeze a, a, a transaction. Well, Finner, I think, again, has done a good job over time. The, the original and you still have the first 15 days to pause a transaction. You get to do that. You pause the transaction, start your investigation. Without going back to FINRA or the regulator, if you need an additional amount of time, you get an additional 10 days. So up to 25 days for the firm to investigate and figure out what's going on. One of the things you and I have experienced, Bob, is that APS are very nice people, but often they can't resolve things within a 25-day period. So FINRA recently added to that time period, saying that if you, in fact, reported a case of elder financial abuse to Adult Protective Services or to a state securities regulator or other regulator, you then get an additional 30 days. So you would have up to 55 days, which usually should be enough time to have you do what you're doing, hear back from the regulator, law enforcement, or whomever, and then make a final decision on whether the pause should stay in place or be lifted or what have you. I think it's important to keep in mind those those timelines because that's what gives you the protection uh, in order to step in and uh, and take action. So, Ron, most of the rules that give firms, whether it's a FINRA rule or a, a state law, that give firms the opportunity to step in where they see uh, fraud don't necessarily extend to where you're suspicious, the activity is suspicious, 
but there's not necessarily evidence of fraud. What can firms do in, in the case where there's, there's behavior that is inconsistent with the client's uh, tr- you know, historical behavior and maybe contrary to their best interest, but there's no indication that a fraud is occurring? And that's one of the tougher situations out there, Bob, is one I've mentioned to both the, all of our regulators to try and get them to focus on it. It puts a firm in a tough spot. One thing that we did do was to actually put in our account agreement with the customer, which says if we see something amiss or somehow think there's something afoot, we reserve the right in our customer agreement with you to slow things down, to pause and seek some sort of intervention, whether from you, your family, or the regulatory bodies. So every firm doesn't have that in place now, but they can look to their customer agreement that exists as it does now to see if that allows a place to do it. The other thing would be to then, in fact, make the report to Adult Protective Services. I'll be pretty frank that often they will not get involved because they don't see fraud, but they're the agency that might step in if what they call self-harm, usually seen in other ways, but we would argue that diminished capacity could reach a point of self-harm such that APS may step in to investigate, that may get the family involved, and at that point we could get more clarity around the situation. Brian, you mentioned Adult Protective Services. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what resources are available uh, to firms in this area. Yeah, so Adult Protective Services are in every state variations on how good, or I shouldn't say how good, but how active they are. Some, remember, are loaded with the physical abuse cases, so financial abuse cases may not be their highest priority. But you can find the firm in your area by going to the website, or actually there's a phone number. Let me give you the 1-800 number, 1-800-677. 1116 1-800-677-1116, or you can also go to eldercare.acl.gov, eldercare.afacharlielima.gov. And what about um, criminal authorities, Ron? Is there any time you see firms reaching out to the FBI or or organizations like that? Yeah, we do encourage you to reach out to local law enforcement. Again, just to be frank, for some of them, these are not priority cases. They're seeing a lot in their mind, more urgent matters. But we do encourage reaching out to law enforcement, local law enforcement. And if the fraud occurs over the internet, the FBI is very interested. They've taken a great interest in this area in the last few years, and they've set up a website ic3.gov. So it's I as in ICE, C as in Charlie, the number three, dot G-O-V, where it's the Internet Crime Complaint Center of the FBI. They love getting these internet fraud cases because it allows them to start aggregating, focusing whether there's a geographic hotspot or what have you, and they can step in, but they can't do anything if they don't hear about the cases. So we want you to report to Adult Protective Services. We want you to go to the securities regulator. But if it's an internet fraud case, 
please make sure you're also bringing the FBI in through this IC3 uh, website. Terrific. Ron, before we wrap up, anything out of the FINRA conference that uh, you thought would be helpful for listeners to to know? I think FINRA is made it very clear they do want to be thinking, are there other things they should be adding to this rule? Is there more they can do? The quite frankly, discouraging thing is that the take-up rate of trusted contact across the industry is simply not that great. What more can they do? Does it require more PSAs? Does it require more training on what's the correct bedside manner for the advisor as they approach a customer? So that's one of the biggest things that they're focusing on in terms of how do we get more trusted contact in there? And then they're willing to listen to actual use cases of the pauses and the timeframes as to whether that's working. The diminished capacity question, they still worry that advisors are not gerontologists, how do they know? But they do acknowledge that at some point that may still need to come across their desk and they need to make some decisions. Terrific. All right, so I, I was gonna uh, wrap up now. Ron, were there any other points that we didn't hit that you wanted to talk about? No, the only other thing I would add, for particularly for the smaller firms, is that many times your peer firms have seen some of these issues. So if you can find ways where in your locality, you guys get together quarterly, once a year, twice a year, just to talk shop on what you're seeing, what you're doing, how you approach it. We found that, frankly, with some of the bigger firms, we actually share a lot. I think that can also work in the smaller firm world as well. Ron, would you bring in adult protective services, those quarterly or semi-annual meetings? I absolutely would if you could. Now, again, some of them, I don't want to say this the wrong way, but this is not their strong suit. So they may decline an opportunity to come speak. But many, and over the years, they've become more engaged. So I would absolutely invite the adult protective services agency from your area. To one of these meetings. Well, Ron, that's about uh, all the time we have today. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, reconnecting with you and talking about a topic that I know both of us have a, an awful lot of passion about. For our listeners, if you'd like to learn more, please go to oyster.com. Thanks very much, Ron. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Bob. I enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you'd like to learn more about our experts and how Oyster can help your firm, visit our website at oysterllc.com. And if you like what you heard today, follow us on whatever platform you listen to and give us a review. Reviews make it easier for people to find us. Have a great day.